This is the Education Gadfly Show. Sweet on top of sweet. All <laughs> yeah. right. On top of sweet. And right? I think there's even some molasses in there, too. On Along top of sweet. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join us in welcoming our special guest for this week, the James Carville of Education Reform, Mark Porter McGee. Hey. Hey, Mark. Welcome. Also joining us, Brandon Wright from Fordham. Hello. So, you know, the James Carville thing. So this works on several different levels. Sure. Right. Not, not only the, the, the hair it is. Yeah, the yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But also the, the fact that, you know, James Carville, Mary Madigan, you know, this power couple yeah. uh, in, in American politics and, and you and Kathleen Porter McGee, the power couple in education reform. Boom. It's nice of you to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> See? I don't know how well power couples have been holding up lately in the uh, in our in our news. But, uh, uh, yes. I. You, what, which ones are you having? I don't know. Hillary and Bill, for example. Yes. All right. Yeah, that's fine. But uh, yeah. So uh, and, and uh, welcome back to the show. I feel Thank like you. you come every Thanksgiving. This is our tradition. Yeah. I've got a, two work days left and then we're, we're and off we're for a little time. So I Excellent. wanted to come in and check in on the what's what's happening. Well, everybody should know this. But if you don't, Mark is the CEO and founder of 50 Can, which uh, is a school reform group working in a number of states that is lower than 50. That is true. That it's, is an, true. it's an aspirational name. <laughs> uh, but it's actually a, a bigger number than in the past. Yep. Are you, how many are you up to? So we're up to 11 state campaigns. Okay. Um, and in addition to supporting people who are working full time to yep. drive change in um, in their states, we're also running a lot of training programs now. Nice. So that brings us into another four or five states. Yeah, good. Yeah. Hawaii is the latest state. I love it. it. You yes. know, if, if you wanted to get that number up, I think you should really look at territories. I mean, nobody's focused <laughs> on Guam. Uh, you know, except as we think about them potentially getting blown off the face of the earth. But in terms of their education system, Puerto Rico needs a lot of help right now. That's true. Puerto Rico, as Donald Trump would say. And so do you get to travel to Hawaii a lot now? Uh, so my uh, partner and colleague, Velay Varo, our president, is uh, has taken the lead representing 50CAN and working with our with our state can there in Hawaii. Although I did go out uh, about two years ago when we were starting to mm-hmm. talk to some partners there. and. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, it's a really interesting state. It's, it's been great to get to know it. Uh-huh. There you go. Okay. Hey man, lots to cover. Education does not stop for the holidays. So Heck let's no. do ed reform update. All right, Mark, this one's going to feel a little self-centered. Brandon and I came out with a report last week on ESSA. And our conclusion was that the states are, by and large, stepping up when it comes to accountability. Uh, We seem to be the only ones that hold this view uh, in the entire (laughs) education reform movement. (laughs) So tell us what you think. Are we being overly optimistic, even naive? So I would say my first foray into state-level advocacy was in 2005 mm-hmm. in Connecticut with CONCAN. And at the time, we, you know, we had a front row seat to a state that initially was highly resistant to advocacy. It was the only state to sue the federal government to not disaggregate its student achievement uh-huh. results. Yeah. Um, but over time, that started to shift the conversation. And so I think there, there I do think we got to a point where the federal government's prodding of the states was doing as much harm as good uh, when it was starting to make it feel like accountability could only be something owned nationally. Yeah. And I think what we've seen in our states is that there's genuine local support for an effective accountability system, but people want to be able to make those decisions locally. So it doesn't surprise me that 
we're starting to see a year and a half into this mm-hmm. process that states are coming up with ideas, owning them and moving forward. And certainly the time we've spent in some of the states that, that seem to be highly rated is mm-hmm. they've had strong leadership. All right. Now, Brandon, tell us quickly the, the three things that we looked at uh, in this report. We saw whether states have a rating for schools that's clear and intuitive for parents and the public. Um, we checked to see whether they encourage schools to focus on all students. And uh, we check to see whether their accountability system uh, fairly and accurately rates all schools. Right. And so what we find is, first of all, very clear ratings. I mean, surprisingly so. A bunch of states now doing A to F mm-hmm. or a zero to five stars, which are both great. Yep. Also a bunch doing some kind of one to 100 index. So real labels for all schools. This is way better uh, than under No Child Left Behind, where in many cases, you know, you had these labels and nobody understood what the heck they meant. And frankly, then what states could have done under ESSA and about 10 states did do, which is simply say, all right, these are the five or 10% of schools that are in need of improvement or whatever the label is now. And then all the rest of the schools don't get any label, right? Yeah. They could have just done that. And yet 40 states uh, have now some kind of label that goes on every school that differentiates multiple levels. And that's pretty understandable for mm-hmm. parents. We mm-hmm. think that is a huge victory uh, at a time when a lot of the guardrails had been taken off at the federal level. And yet the pushback from reformers is, well, for one thing, you didn't look at other stuff like whether subgroups are counted. Another thing is, you know, you're not looking at consequences. You're only looking at transparency. Right. Uh, what, what What's your take on that? So I, I do think, you know, back in the, you know, 2008, 2009, as we started to see the number of schools being rated as failure growing and growing, yep. working towards this goal of 100% by, I think it was 2014 right. at the time. 100% proficiency. 100% proficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and what proficiency meant varied, mm-hmm. as we know, very greatly. There was some, I think there was some real concern. Would we ever get off of that train and onto something that would be more useful to parents yeah. than labeling most schools as failures. Mm-hmm. And A to F is sort of the little train that could. I think a lot of people have counted out those kind of rating systems as being overly simplistic, but mm-hmm. I think the research seems to suggest actually is helpful mm-hmm. for schools and parents. And um, our team in Tennessee led a fight around this mm-hmm. last year. Um, and I think that just kind of point the way forward that we can have ratings that work that are understandable for parents. Yeah. Um the question of consequences is, uh, it's complicated mm-hmm. because, um, you know, ideally you're arming parents with the information they need to make choices and that bottom-up accountability gets mixed together with other judgment calls about schools because mm-hmm. we know no rating system can capture everything. Right. Um, I do think there's value in having a floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're publicly funding schools and we shouldn't publicly fund persistent failure. Yeah, no, and, and, and I'm down with that. And though I do think we're, we've just seen time and again how hard it is politically uh, to get states or districts to close schools because of low performance, what has worked uh, is to create new schools, usually charter schools, in communities that have lots of failing schools. And eventually those failing schools go away. Uh, they they don't get closed officially because of low performance. They get closed because they don't have enough kids in them. Uh, that, to me, is a strategy that's actually working and we should embrace. That's why I like, for example, that in Texas, they propose in their plan to use some of their Title I set-aside money for new charter schools in neighborhoods that have lots of failing schools. Not turnarounds, not you know takeovers, mm-hmm. just saying we're going to use the money to create new schools to basically put these other bad schools eventually out of business. Uh, now, that takes some patience. That may not be as satisfying to some of the reformers as saying, we're going to close down the bad schools. But to me, it's, it's you know, at least in urban areas, 
where this new school strategy can work, uh, I think it's a strategy that can actually play out. Yeah, and I, I do think there's been an evolution of a little bit more sophisticated thinking by the reformers. We used to just look at spreadsheets and say, if yeah. we just closed these bottom 10% and yeah. opened a top 10%, yeah. look how we could shift the curve. And we know now it's a, it's a lot more complicated than just moving you know people around on a spreadsheet. And I think what we've seen, one of the trends that I think is really positive is ad reformers at the local level, not just point state policy levers, yeah. but also engaging in specific communities mm-hmm. and thinking about the real needs that would need to be met mm-hmm. in order for a school closure strategy to actually have support. Yeah, I like it. Hey, one last thing is to say that this, this fact that again, 40 plus states have clear ratings now, do a lot of other good things that we like, also move into growth, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think is partly because of the ed reform uh, infrastructure that's been built over the last 10 years. Groups yeah. like 50CAN, mm-hmm. like Stanford Children, like the state-based groups like Tennessee Score and Advanced Illinois and all the rest are having an impact. You know, and if you look at the places where we had some pretty big losses, you know, in other words, where states are, are really not embracing accountability, often cases at times it's places that don't have one of these ed reform groups. You know, the, yeah, we, we are in a better place, and some of us have been arguing, uh, to give power back to the states because there are groups on the ground ready to advocate for what's best for kids. I totally agree. And I would say there's always a little bit of a danger that you're throwing a ball and someone's not going to be there to catch it. But I think in this case, ESSA has put a lot of um, uh, responsibility back on states, and that has been a spur for people to create more groups, to engage more civically. Yeah. And I, I think we're we're getting the timing just about right where we're seeing the growth of even more groups just when the states need to step up and lead even further. All right. Thank you, Mark. Hey, are you making a turkey this week? I am not, but I'm going to be enjoying two turkeys. Nice. Uh, one with Kathleen's parents on Thursday, nice. and then we're flying up to Connecticut, and we'll have another turkey with my parents. Oh, you're so lucky. I'm so jealous. I, I've always, I've had a few Thanksgivings in my life where I've gotten to have two Thanksgiving dinners. That is the best. I think we're going to go out, actually. Oh, interesting. We don't have a lot of family who are yeah. coming around here. Yeah. Our extended family have small kids, and yeah. they live there, so our parents are going there. Yeah. So, so turkey or not? Are you going to like, uh, Chinese I think we're going to go to, like, you know, some nicer place and, you know, get some sort of fancy turkey. Turkey-ish dish or something. Right. You could just sure skip yet, the turkey and you could just have an all-dessert Thanksgiving. Ooh, That's true. That uh, I'll, 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 I'll propose that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mark. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So Mark was just bragging that he gets to have two Thanksgiving dinners. What about you? I'm having three. They just keep uh, morphing into more and more every year. I had two last year and three this year. On the same day? All on Thursday? Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Wow, that is I'm going to be so fat. Uh, (laughs) I'm so jealous. (laughs) I love Thanksgiving. (laughs) Just one. Just one. Same. Well, you need to have more divorce in your family, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well... uh, Kind of, sort of. <laughs> I guess that does uh, that does do it. Yeah, Everybody when, uh, likes to have their own thing, no, and then true. you got different parts of the yeah, family. Yeah. You know. All right. So, what are, are are you usually? What what do you usually have to provide? Are you uh, well, I'm doing I'm doing the ham and okay. the uh, yams. Ham so, and yams. Hams and yams. Yes. Okay. Yams. Yams okay. are sweet potatoes, right? I'm yes, not saying you're saying it wrong, but potatoes. I'm always unsure whether yeah, they're and, the same. And when thing. my yeah, husband makes they them, are. they have about a pound of brown sugar and Ooh, two pounds yes. of of uh, marshmallows on top. 
Yeah. Sweet on top of sweet. All <laughs> yeah. right. Nice. On top of sweet. And nice. I think there's even some molasses in there too. Well, on top of sweet. Yeah. Sugar. That's like, four, that's you four get a cavity sweet, with sweet one bite of Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, right uh, there. I love it. I love it. This is this is such a great holiday, you know. <laughs> it it, it's, it's because it's universal. Everybody celebrates it. You know, this right. one is is not just one religion or other, you know. That's and right. it's all about food. It's I mean, I just think that's, everybody uh, loves to eat. Yeah. 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 So. And leftovers, so it's all good. Mm-hmm. True. That's a good point. That's a great <laughs> point. All right. You Making know. me hungry. Okay, so Amber, what you got for us this week? We have a new meta-analysis on educational technology. Ooh, this thing was 175-some pages. Oh. It was a diller. But anyway, so indeed. we're trying to figure out, like, there's all this ed technology stuff out there, right? Uh, the report basically said that the market for pre-K, just pre-K-12 software alone has exceeded... How much you think? It's got to be. Take a uh, lot. Yes. $3 billion. $8 billion. Okay. Wow. And another report says that the global ed tech industry, global, mm-hmm. will be valued at $252 billion in the next couple of years, mm. which seems like, how do you even wrap your head around that? It's a lot of money. word. Yeah. It's, it's, a, lot, it's a lot of Chromebooks. Yes. Um, <laughs> how to make sense of the state research and educational technology land was the question posed. Like, there's just so much activity. There's so much stuff. So, a group of uh, analysts gathered together all the randomized control trials, of course, and the regression discontinuity designs. So really the two sort of creme de la creme of the research Mm -hmm. designs um, in developed countries only. So this is global, these two types of rigorous designs around the world. What do we have? Then they obviously like, how do you like even attack this? So there's four categories, access to technology, computer-assisted learning, online courses, and behavioral interventions. So I'm going to walk you through real quickly Mm -hmm. each one of those, okay? So access to technology, this is just giving the kids the hardware, okay? 16 studies around the globe, meeting those uh, designs. Very limited access when you just give kids the computer, right? On learning. Impact. Impact, right. Right. Um, On access, right. Um, So this is all those one-on-one computing. Remember, Mm -hmm. like, the Richmond, Mm -hmm. Henrico County was the first country, I mean, first district in the country to give kids one-on-one. And there were a slew, well, not a slew, there were 16, um, around this access and just just basically said, you got to do more than that. Okay. Um, so then the next category is computer assisted learning. And this is specific software, like a p- software package that's intended to improve some type of skill. All right. This is like, there's gazillions of these programs, right? But there are 29 studies around the globe that met their criteria. The majority found positive effects on improving math outcomes in particular. Mm-hmm. So one that got a ton of attention was cognitive tutor. You guys heard of this one? Rings a bell. Yeah. Uh, Carnegie Learning. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking there are par- nine of these RCTs on Carnegie Learning, which makes me think that, you know, somebody's paying for all these yeah. RCTs, right? Um, but they kept finding good uh, results. Uh, it gives them real world math problems and moves them from concrete to abstract based on their performance on the prior mm-hmm. problem. So it's some kind of individualized piece of this. Um, but their big question was at the end of that whole section was that the one of the questions we need to figure out with computer-assisted learning is you can have all these interventions and these software that give kids a little bump, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of studies that look at fade out over time mm-hmm. to these, you know, positive things uh, last. All right. Category number three, online courses, including MOOCs, 20 mm-hmm. studies. What, what do you think they found about online only? Yeah. That's right. Poor results, yeah. not just here but in other countries too (laughs) Um, blended courses you guys know this are on par with outcomes for fully in-person courses 
Okay, so they do no better, they do no worse. Yep. Um, so they suggest this may be the optimal mix of instructional delivery because it's more cost-effective. Mm. Uh, MOOCs, okay. when you look at those studies, they were much more nuanced. So like, how do you improve participation? So it was a very like targeted little question they were answering. So there was yeah. not a ton to say about MOOCs. I'm kind of embarrassed when I think about how excited we were about MOOCs. Like, why, do we, <laughs> why didn't we think that was going to work? I mean, it's basically like saying, hey, if, why don't you just hand kids books? Right. That's it's a personalized learning, learning approach right. and they can read it themselves and, all right, and, uh, and why wouldn't they learn <laughs> from true. that i mean it's, right? it's, yeah. it's, it's just that yeah it's basically that yeah except uh what with a little audio and visual uh yeah a little learning. interaction yeah. and no accountability like yeah. a little correspondence At basically. All. maybe you know where yeah. you get to see the professor doing the lecture rather than just reading it in a book right yeah uh-huh. yeah not much all right, last category, uh, behavioral interventions try to impact a behavior, obviously. Um, and this covered lots of ground, based, I mean, just a ton of different things. 47 of these studies, because wow. it was pretty broad category. Um, from giving parents tips on how to practice reading comprehension with their kid, to reminding parents to submit, to reminding kids to submit their FAFSA. Mm-hmm. So just anytime you're trying to um, change a behavior, okay? Many of these aimed at parental engagement and help uh, helping kids to succeed in transitioning to and through college. That's what most of them were about. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found the most successful programs were those that relied on sending text reminders yep. to parents. Even when you relied on a massive text automation, like you're sending out thousands mm-hmm. of these things, um, they still found positive impacts. Yeah. And so they talked about one particular one where the system pulled information from the student information system. And so it would actually send the parent, oh, your kids missed two classes this week mm-hmm. or your kids missed his math assignment or whatever. It literally could pull right from yep. the database and send a text to the parent that was customized. Um, so obviously that one was pretty successful. Uh, increased, uh, the treatment study actually saw 39% reduction in failed courses, which I thought, yeah, makes sense. Um, so anyway, that's the four categories. They end up saying, you know, what this field is it's huge it's evolving and the products and so- software out there change so quickly they're out of date so quickly and so it's really not a matter of figuring out like what's the program that's most successful it should be thinking about how do we leverage technology writ large to help kids learn change behavior like you know it's just a, a broader mindset i think for a while we thought like we just got to find the program you know that knocks it out of the park but really i think it's more of a long-term kind of strat not strategy but how do you really integrate this in a way that makes sense uh yeah it's 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 really interesting point how 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 fast technology changes how fast software changes i mean you have your iphone right and you're getting a version update every couple weeks i mean like things change (laughs) so often (laughs) it's designed to make your iphone explode so you have to go buy another one Uh, yeah and uh yeah it's 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 a really interesting question um and uh, and it certainly shows, you know, I guess some of the naivety or maybe the hope mm-hmm. um, that we'd find this sort of, you know, golden program. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of some of the hope you're talking about with MOOCs and uh, yeah, I don't know. But, which is interesting that the behavioral interventions mm-hmm. were the one where you see a lot of problems, which is not about a particular software, right? right? It's right. giving them information right. that they can use. and. It's interesting. I'm sure they could have they could have looked at another category could have been teacher kind of mm-hmm. behavior, right? I mean, what are some things you can use technology for to help teachers be more efficient or, uh, you know, I mean, this is all about how do you get people, both teachers and kids to use their time better, mm-hmm. right? What are they be- 
teaching in the classroom? What are kids learning? Right. I mean, you got to get into their specifics. Mm -hmm. uh, is it aligned? Is it rigorous? Is it challenging? A big question and, I have too. And, is... and if you, you know, if you can save teachers time, you know, which mm -hmm. some of the stuff that we just take for granted now, you know, I mean, like, you know, that I see all the time now at school. I mean, the fact that they can do a sign up genius thing easily to get mm -hmm. parents to sign up to be, mm -hmm. you know, the secret reader every week. Shh, don't tell anyone. I'm the secret reader of this week. <laughs> uh, you know, or, or whatever. I mean, they're just right. communicating, sharing, yeah, collaborating. Right. I mean, I think it's some of those behind the scenes stuff. I mean, so a lot of this sounds student facing, but mm -hmm. there's also that, uh, all this stuff that's, you know, behind the scenes that we Operate, hope can make us kind of operations yeah. and, and mm -hmm. te you know, helping teachers actually be more productive. Mm -hmm. So as, as, as an actual parent, Mike, who has kids in school, um, a big question I have is, you know, we already, we just talked about, you know, how fast this stuff evolves and yeah. changes. How do you, in in a bureaucratic system like yeah. public schooling, mm -hmm. sort of get the right things in as many classrooms as possible and have those things evolve and change as they should? It seems like the only possible answer would just be to give teachers autonomy and because I don't see how this could work mm -hmm. from a top-down mm -hmm. standpoint. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I don't, I don't see a whole lot of it yet. I mean, okay. it's in the elementary school grades, you know, it's, it's yeah. pretty, it's on the periphery, I okay. would say. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, I was just going to say, yeah, that the, I think one of the biggest contributions we can make is what not to do. Yeah. So I spent some time in classrooms in the last week and I saw you wrote a blog about this not yeah. too long ago. Like, let's be careful about personalized learning because mm -hmm. in many ways it's becoming the babysitter. I definitely saw classrooms yeah. where the mm -hmm. kids were like here and the teacher's like at her desk doing something. I'm not sure what, but she wasn't walking around mm -hmm. making kids sure they were on task or anything like that. So um, I don't know. I feel like we get a better idea of what it shouldn't be than what it should mm -hmm. be right now, which mm -hmm. is odd, but that's the way it happens sometimes. Yeah. All right. Well, sounds like something we should all check out. This uh, international meta analysis. Maybe over Thanksgiving break. Yeah, sure. All yeah. right. <laughs> of course, uh, if if you yeah, of course, if you have a break uh, versus Amber, who's just going to be eating, and eating, eating and, and eating some more. Yes. All right. Good. Well, until <laughs> next week. I'm Brandon Wright, and I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.